That's your t-shirt now, don't I? This is the Black Rifle Coffee Podcast. Good morning. Welcome to the Black Rifle Coffee Podcast. Very special one. Um, have uh, uh, a very awesome guest this morning. Uh, a top of the field expert, but recently become controversial, <laughs> which is mind-numbing, like we were just talking. <laughs> why, it's crazy to me that we're, we're even having a conversation like this and, and, and things are getting taken down left and right and it's all just, all you are is presenting information and an opinion and data. Uh, but yeah, Dr. Peter McCullough, welcome <laughs> to the Black Rifle Coffee Podcast. We're down here in San Antonio, Texas, and you shot down. Where'd you come from today? I came down from Dallas. Dallas, okay. No, we can't thank you enough for being down here. Well, yeah, so we can jump right into this. I mean, this last week, you know, we we saw a bunch of things got taken down on online that... Again, I listened to your episode on Joe Rogan, good friend of ours, very, very respected uh, host of, of the biggest show on earth. Uh, and and it, was, it was very insightful. Like you were not, you were not on that, that show throwing hard opinions, saying you were, you were merely presenting a timeline of facts and then data and then ask, kind of asking the question, you know, why? Why, why is this the way that it is? So like, uh, I, I guess to start out, like what I want to talk about, because what I did notice though is after, after your episode, there was a massive tidal wave of people that were taking to the internet to use you as a traffic gateway. Uh, I saw, I, I mean, one of my favorite ones was, and, and, and we can discuss this because you would know this much better than me, the kind of level of, of medicine and, and where you're at in the medical community and things like that. A guy jumps to YouTube to debunk you, but has absolutely no credentials outside of the fact that he graduated medical school. And there is a big difference <laughs> in doctors that have done specific research, specific studies, published, you know, created research and wrote papers. And that was the first thing I took away was in the introduction of your show on Joe's, on, on Joe's episode, you know, you cite all of your accomplishments, sources, the history in, in your expertise. And then this guy jumps on and, and he has none, but then spends an hour talking about how what you say is wrong. That that makes no sense to me. And and then, then to see the traffic that that gets just off of it, it's because people, there are a side of people that want to hear exactly what he's saying and they don't care if there's, if, if, if there's actual facts and data behind it. They just wanted to hear that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, as introduced, I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist in Dallas, Texas. I'm trained in epidemiology. And, uh, you know, I showed up uh, to Black Rifle Coffee, uh, JT and Logan, in my uh, kind of usual uh, kind of doctor's. Uh, yeah. That's what I wear to the office every day. I, I don't feel terribly controversial. You guys will be disappointed. I don't have a tattoo on my body and, and I don't... Uh, uh, you know, I don't uh, drink alcohol or do anything unseemly. Um, 
But, uh, you know, I can tell you that uh, the experience of any given scientist or doctor really matters, and the publication track record matters because each publication means that that individual has been a part of a group and has either led it as first author or senior author, but has actually analyzed information and interpreted it. So I'm in my fourth decade of doing this. Right. And uh, I have uh, in the National Library of Medicine, which is the documentation of medical history. It goes back for decades and decades. There are uh, listed published manuscripts and I can go back and say, well, you know, this is where my contribution was here and there. This is how I analyzed the data. And those numbers matter. So uh, for instance, it's been said that, uh, for instance, a, a professor of medicine, anybody who would have even a say in anything should be about 100 publications. Each publication is, uh, some of them are extensive as a PhD thesis. So a lot of times a PhD would say, gosh, you know, I did my thesis. I said, well, that's just the start. I mean, we, <laughs> yeah. we, you know, this is, this is the work that we do. So uh, I have uh, now uh, 660 uh, plus publications in the National Library of Medicine. Now I'm with a doctor uh, in an academic medical center in Dallas who's approaching 90 and he has over a thousand peer reviewed publications. So it can, it can, you can get over a thousand. Uh, but it was said years ago, before modern computational methods, if you got to 25, that was a big deal. There was a paper in Annals of Internal Medicine years ago saying, you know, 25, that, was, that person was a learned person. Uh, and just like a lawyer who would say they tried so many cases or they got to, uh, they, you know, they got to state courts and then they got to uh, district courts and then they got yeah. to appellate courts and Supreme Court. You know, we have the same thing in medicine and I have worked my way up through these uh, systems. And I uh, previously, before COVID hit, I was studying how heart and kidney function interacts with one another. And we had major uh, discoveries collectively in the field about uh, in vitro diagnostic tests actually helped diagnose a patient with heart failure, for instance. I was a senior author in that New England Journal of Medicine breakthrough paper uh, in uh, 2002. And um, all the way to drugs. We now have drugs that actually simultaneously improve heart and kidney outcomes. That was really the dream of this. But when COVID-19 hit, within a few weeks, it was basically all hands on deck. It would be similar, right. it'd be similar to a natural disaster. Would you go out and help your neighbor? Right. And so that's what I was doing. And I was positioned as someone trained in internal medicine. So I handle common infections every day. So, you know, antibiotics, antivirals, steroids, anticoagulants, they are not uh, foreign to me at all. But also I had the analytic uh, experience and capability. I had been uh, chaired data safety monitoring boards. I still do for the National Institutes of Health, multiple uh, in vitro diagnostics, big pharma and device companies. I have uh, uh, testified uh, uh, in you know courts all over uh, the world, presented uh, to the um, uh, FDA, the European Medicine Agencies, etc. I had already been, uh, in a sense, uh, a, on the national scene in terms of a leader in medicine, my name was fairly well known. I, there was a, some boards that have indicated, you know, my name would be in the top 100 names known in cardiology, uh, in nephrology. Interestingly, I have uh, a couple um, attributes that people have said. I'm the most published cardiologist in the nephrology world because I work in both specialties. And overall, about heart-kidney interactions, I'm the most published person in my field in the world and history. So I felt qualified uh, as any other doctor to pick up on COVID-19, uh, tackle it as uh, an academic clinical issue. And the immediate need that I saw was early treatment because there were two bad outcomes in my analysis 
hospitalization and death. And I think anybody listening to this would say, okay, if I got sick with something, as long as I wasn't hospitalized and as long as I didn't die, that would be- so We're all right yeah. with that. Yeah. I think that's a good starting point. Uh, real quick, can the, the, the peer review part of this, that is essentially where other members that are as prestigious as you go through and, and, and kind of check and put their blessing on these? Like, how does that, how do, how does that work? How did that happen? So a manuscript, for instance, uh, would, would be um, uh, is submitted to a journal. Sometimes it's invited that the editor wants it or it's uh, submitted uh, de novo. And then uh, it goes through a, an editorial check where the editor, and I'm the editor of a major journal, so I do this every day. I did it this morning before I got on the plane. And we'll look over the manuscripts and say, you know, this one's not going to make it. We just reject it before review. Uh, and I do that commonly. And uh, ones that say, okay, this one looks valid. Then it goes to the next level where it's assigned to reviewers. And so two independent or more reviewers. Uh, there's a times, there's six reviewers. They check the work. Yeah. yeah. So actually, all that is checked. And then there are major and minor comments that must be addressed. So it's rare that any paper gets through the peer review process without some changes. So in the changes, there is the reviewer's comments, the response to reviewer's comments called the rebuttal letter, and then the revised manuscript in marked up fashion, like highlighted or uh, in a markup fashion. And then there's the final uh, manuscript. That comes back to the editor for the final review and then acceptance. And then once it's accepted, then it goes into galley proof. So the galleys actually gets put into typesetting. That has to be rechecked. Everything's rechecked, the drugs, the doses, the references to make sure they're pinpoint. And then, then there is a publication contract. There is a copyright uh, assignment. Uh, there's oftentimes charges for color figures. And then it's finally submitted to the National Library of Medicine. And then it becomes part of permanent medical history. So if I've told you I've done that, uh, 600, 600, 600, 660 yeah. times. Uh, one of these... It uh, sounds exhausting. I know, like, it's the exhausting. Process is insane. The process is exhaustive, and it's, it's for a reason, because we don't want information to be misleading. It has to be accurate. And uh, when uh, someone, uh, as this doctor did on YouTube, and I think his name is ZZ Dog. Doesn't sound too professional. I don't, <laughs> no, I, I don't think I'd, I'd change my name to that. Um, but, um, but when he reviewed it, someone asked me, is he credible? I said, well, I've never heard of him, but respectfully, I looked him up in the National Library of Medicine and he had three papers uh, where he was listed as an author cited in the National Library of Medicine. I think maybe as a resident, he worked on a project, what have you. But he wasn't at the level that to be respectful to have an interchange and say, well, I'm going to critique every single word that Dr. McCullough said. Right. Now, we can always, physicians, just by our nature, we're very respectful. And if he approached me, and you know, I'm in the senior position, obviously, we could have an interchange and he can learn about how to help treat patients with COVID-19. But he's not in a position to go out and try to critique me. I think this is important because honestly, this is something I've been saying for a while. The the culture shift that we've seen with social media is the direct byproduct of what this is. And that I think it's super important for you to break down what you just did of what it means to have a single journal published uh, in, in this process and then what it, what it would take to have over 600 because there is a hierarchy, there is a rank structure, there is, there is someone that is more of an expert than something. And I think we lose that with social media because you, you should see the people that, that comment to us and tell us how to run a business or tell us, oh, it, why would you even think to do that? And these are people that have never owned a business, never never owned anything, never created anything from scratch, but they are, they are perfectly comfortable with jumping on the internet and then telling someone else 
as if they're in some position of expertise. And, and it's mind-numbing because you're like, wait, what? You know, at least in the, in the when we were in the military, you have a defined rank structure that you wear on your collar, and it shows right away that you were you have achieved at least some form of of training and education and time in that in in your field to show that you are becoming an expert. And, well, and- well, you know, it's another really important question that so many of the media people don't ask. In medicine, there's doctors that actually do the academic scholarship work as an author editor. Uh, and clinical scholar. And there's also doctors who take care of patients. Now, the real gold is to find doctors who do both. Both. <laughs> both. So in the uh, U.S. It's Senate... theory case, versus, yeah, versus practice. But, oh, yeah. you know, reducing it to practice. That, yeah. That's what it is. So in the U.S. Senate hearings on November 19th in 2020, chaired by Senator Ron Johnson as the ranking um, uh, Republican majority uh, uh, chair, chairman at the time, uh, you, you know, as uh, I was a lead witness, we are heavily vetted. You know, my resume was submitted to the U.S. Senate. My, I had to um, uh, have a prepared uh, statement that was heavily vetted. You know, I had five minutes to make my case to America about that COVID-19 should be treated um, uh, and, and why it should be treated. And so, you know, there is a level that, that wouldn't be, um, you know, ZZ Dog wouldn't be Senate material. Not with those three. Not with those three. People ought to look at that and say, who is providing uh, an opinion out the information. there? And are those opinions uh, valuable? Now, in COVID-19, uh, I haven't rested on my laurels. I have now 52 publications in COVID-19. And I've been carried on an author block as a, as a contributor to what's called the Stop COVID program. And that's out of the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Harvard Medical School, which I'm carried forward as an investigator since I uh, kind of uh, anchored that at my institution. So I'm very well aware of the Stop COVID program. But I've been the first author on the two major treatment papers that has taught the world how to treat COVID-19 as an outpatient. And very importantly, I am pushing collaborations. I just had one with uh, the Italians, Dr. Fazio's first author, where we wanted to see where is the golden time window to treat somebody before they really get sick with COVID-19. The answer is three days. So each one of the papers uh, has a point to make. Uh, I have a paper with uh, Jessica Rose, who's a leading viral epidemiologist, and that's on myocarditis, on heart inflammation after vaccination. Now, that one actually has a very uh, storied history. That paper was invited by Current Problems of Cardiology, a highly ranked review journal. Uh, it was we went through the whole editorial process I described. was fully accepted. Uh, copyright, copyright and publication contract. I know because I paid the contract fees, which are not small. Yeah. Uh, color, extra color figure charges. And it's cited in the National Library of Medicine. The main point of the paper, by the way, was just to show that the myocarditis peaks around, uh, you know, age 18 to 20. But boy, there's a tail that comes all the way out to age 50. So I'm talking about 90% of the people who get myocarditis vaccine-induced myocarditis are men, but out to age 50. That was the big story that came out of that paper analyzing VARES, and it was considered to be valid. Five days before the pediatric meetings, the FDA meetings on vaccine approval for children, Elsevier, the leading medical publisher, withdraws the paper. I've never had that happen in my life before. It withdrew the paper out of the National Library of Medicine. It was already part of permanent history. It was being downloaded and utilized, and it was pulled. The message that we got is Elsevier said, well, we're not sure we invited the paper to begin with. We said, wait a minute, we're already through this. What do you mean? This has already happened. The only way they can pull a paper is if it's found to be scientifically invalid, which it's not. 
So can you imagine, this is the level of censorship you're worried about YouTube. I, yeah, I just want to, yeah, these, this is one of those things, like, because everyone loves to use the term debunked, which is ridiculous. This, this is fact. These, they polled, they, they polled, polled a study. The, yeah, they, listen, they pulled a paper, <laughs> and I can tell you, I am an editor. I have never seen this in my, we have malfeasance, which is wrongdoing by those in position of authority, and we have now very overt censorship at the highest levels. And in fact, now my only recourse as a senior author is to sue Elsevier. And so to actually sue Elsevier, which I've never had to sue a publisher before, it's very interesting because there's a, all this work was done. There's a contract. I paid the fees. They weren't smart enough to even return the fees. They just kept them. I mean, you think about this. So you got a this. pretty good case. So yeah, I mean, this is ridiculous. You can imagine this. So, so actually they are going to be sued for breach of contract, because they've obviously breached a publication contract, uh, and they had no uh, standing to withdraw the paper based on some type of uh, editorial um, correspondence. That's just not valid. The only way they could pull it is if it was found to be invalid, which is not. And then I'm also going to sue them for tortuous interference. So what that means is they are interfering in the business of disseminating scientific information. The largest medical publisher in the world, let me tell you, a deep pocket. And uh, they will have a lot to answer for. And one of the things we're going to get in the case, and I'll be very open with the listeners on this, is we're going to get the uh, um, the uh, discovery. Transcript discovery. of who talked about who what. Who talked when. about yes. what. And who <laughs> emailed them yeah. to say, listen, Roses and McCullough's paper is out there. It shows the vaccines are causing heart injury in a large number of people. Uh, why don't you pull the paper? And what can we do for you if you pull the paper? What's going to happen in all these lawsuits? All the action is on the discovery. All these acts of malfeasance, right. these unprecedented acts of malfeasance. I'll give you another one. The Senate testimony, I said, Ron Johnson as the chair, Gary Peters as the minority uh, 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 chair, co-chair. That was U.S. Senate testimony sworn designed to give America the message that COVID-19 was a treatable illness. Do you know that it was, it was censored off of YouTube? Of course it was. It was. <laughs> so this is actually U.S. Senate testimony. It's sworn testimony. I've actually had, when I testified in the, in the uh, Texas Senate in Austin on uh, March 10th of 2021, uh, I was notified, again, sworn testimony under oath, I was notified that a fact checker was fact checking me. And I said, well, where is this fact checker? Maybe he's Who, in Austin yeah, or yeah. Dallas, what have you. What are it their was, credentials? It was Rémy Benet, and he was a French fact checker in Paris. Why is a fact checker in Paris interested in my Texas Senate uh, Department of Health and Human Services right. testimony? That's the first question. And then Daniel O'Connor, who's leading Trial Site News, a, a leading organization breaking through all this, he actually fact checked the fact checkers in general and they, within a few clicks, all trace back to the vaccine stakeholders every single time. So no they are actually kidding. paid hands by the vaccine stakeholders attempting to discredit uh, highly ranked doctors giving their analysis. Well, wow. I, I don't understand, the, first, why people don't think that this is pop. Like, like why, why they're hiding their head in the sand thinking that this isn't, this isn't possible or people wouldn't do this. They absolutely would. There's motive. There's motive. There's motive everywhere. There's motive down to the hospital administrator. You know, I had, I had my own experience with this last year. My daughter, who's four years old, you know, uh, was, kept having a fever. Every time, every time we took her in, all they did was a COVID test and then send, them, send her home. 
and and this was a week on end. And this is this is the negligence that this is. And I've heard countless stories after after I've talked about this. So many of people have told me. I just saw uh, something yesterday about a friend of mine had a child with a head in a head cut and bleeding out of the head, and they went home after four hours because the ER was not triaging like they're supposed to. Everything was was. COVID first. And, and that's what it got to. It got to the point of like me almost threatening to burn the hospital down with a, with a can of diesel and a road flare. And to the point where they finally gave her a blood test and realized that she had a bone infection and was on the verge of sepsis and about to die. And it is negligence of the staff of everybody just getting lazy and just all of, oh, all we have to do is test for COVID now. And if you don't have it, you got to go home. We don't have to deal with you because that all we're worried about is COVID. It's like I'm seeing it and, 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 and the, the hospital administrators just being so, they're, they're no one helpful. Like it's all just get out. If you, if, if you don't have COVID, just get out. Does a hospital receive anything to have like, like you know, there's I'm, motive every step of this. I'm not way. an expert on the flow of money yeah. from federal and other sources to hospitals and hospital administrations and clinics, but I am under the general impression that COVID-19 is a well-compensated activity. Yeah. And uh, there is a preoccupation with COVID. <clears throat> and uh, I was actually on an interview yesterday with uh, Chris Saucedo. And uh, there was an ICU expert who was side by side. And I made the comment that only people who are coming to the hospital who have an acute respiratory problem should be tested for COVID. That uh, otherwise, you know, this idea that we're going to blanket test people for COVID is just my opinion that it's going to create a lot of uh, situations. It's a waste of resources as well. And he felt very different. The ICU doctor said, listen, he goes, we can't have COVID people sitting next to non-COVID people. I said, well, listen, if people are asymptomatic, we know they can't spread it anyway. We're at 25% prevalence in Dallas. We hit that by uh, the, the data from the Dallas County Community Health. So we're at the point where we might as well assume everyone has it. I mean, honestly, right. just take care of the sick people. <clears throat> but I agree with you. I have an anecdote. My wife's father's 98 years old. He uh, went to, got sick with uh, basically a sepsis-like picture, went to a hospital in Toronto, he's Canadian, and went through innumerable COVID rule-out protocols, each one costing days of time, locked down in a room. He turns out he had a urological source, we believe, of a gram-negative rod infection. And, uh, and then he finally gets through this arduous hospital stay that went through innumerable COVID rule-outs. And then he gets transferred to a rehab facility, of which he goes to another COVID uh, rule-out protocol. <laughs> He's never had signs and symptoms of COVID. Uh, you know, he was given the vaccine in the, ho- in the hospital when he was in Toronto, um, uh, basically as part of the care. And what this um, uh, uh, repetitive overreach of fear-driven COVID rule-out has done is it has turned medicine upside down. Patients and families are furious. They're furious not only on the non-COVID care, but they're furious about COVID care. And uh, a a recent uh, paper that was published in uh, JAMA, and I want you to be uh, aware of this, uh, that's very impressive. Uh, A recent paper that was published, uh, and I want to give the exact citation because this is going to be about information and not misinformation. Uh, the first author is Karen E. Burns, and she is from the Academic of Criti- the Academy of Critical Care Development Evaluation and Methodology, the Academy Group, published in JAMA. 
The title of the paper is this, Adherence to Clinical Practice Guidelines for Pharmacologic Treatments of Hospitalized Patients with COVID-19 and Its Adherence to Trustworthy Standards. Her conclusion, listen to this, only 18.8% of all the um, uh, guidelines uh, provided any description of the risks and benefits of treatment. Only 9.4% actually had a commitment to have external experts review those guidelines and update them. Her point is, her conclusion is, few of the guidelines that the hospitals say they're adhering to are even trustworthy. They're not even trustworthy. That's a review in JAMA. Can you imagine? We've heard this from doctors. Oh, we're following a protocol. The hospitals are saying we're following a protocol. This uh, evidence-based evaluation says the protocols are not trustworthy. And by any means, 18%, that, that's failure. That's right? Any standard you look at, that by is all failure, failure to do a job correctly. Patients have been crying for doctors to use their judgment and not try to, in a sense, hide behind these protocols right. or feel constrained by these protocols or feel shielded by these protocols. People are infuriated. You know what the, the, what the hospital, the word that you should demand, JT? It's called shared decision-making. You share in the decision-making that's going on for you. How many patients come in the hospital and they say, listen, I want ivermectin. I've been following the story. Right. Patients are being revived with ivermectin. It's got a very good hospital track record. It's safe and effective. No, no ivermectin for you. In fact, families have been so infuriated, they've gone to courts and they've had to seek court orders to tell the hospital administrators, the doctors, the ICU, and the chief of staff, give this patient ivermectin. We've even had hospitals say, we're still not going to do it. And then an external doctor has to somehow take time off of their day to give a poor patient ivermectin. This is a drug that we would give uh, a patient who had scabies in the next bed without any difficulty, or we'd give to the next patient with strongyloides. It's a drug that's given routinely to Afghan uh, refugees who come here because they have a lot of parasitic infections. It's safe and effective. And COVID-19, we have over 60 supportive studies. And yet, there is a real Block, showdown. A blockade. Yeah. I, like, this is why this is so clear. I just like, experienced. I, I had COVID <laughs> about a month ago. And as, as soon as I tested positive, I, I asked, I was like, can I get ivermectin? And they were like, I would like you to get it, but no pharmacies in the Bernie larger area of northern San Antonio would prescribe it. Like, I couldn't get it. And so I'm looking at them like, why not? Like, why can't I go get this? I had to like work third-party like connections to get ivermectin to be able to treat myself. When I testified at the Texas Department of Health and Human Services uh, on March 10th, 2021, uh, Senator Texas Senator Colquart, she was the chairwoman. Uh, I, I had my time where I testified and there was a break and I'll never forget at the break when she mentioned to somebody, she goes, boy, I was really lucky. My husband got really sick with... Uh, COVID-19, I was really lucky to get some ivermectin. He got better right away. And I went on fire and I told Texas, I said, where is the access to this medication? Where are these poor people in South Dallas and elsewhere who are suffering with COVID-19? Do you know we have incredibly large numbers of fractions of Hispanics and African-Americans who have died of COVID-19? They have about double the death rate of uh, other racial and ethnic groups, that they are basically having uh, no access to medications. Pierre Corey, who was on fire at the U.S. Senate testimony December 8th of 2020, Pierre led that session. He wore his lab coat on the, on the Senate floor and said he implored America that this illness is slaughtering people. And yet there is a, a 
clear intent that is coming out of this to promote as much fear, yep. suffering, <laughs> hospitalization, and death as possible. It's, it's, it's as if there is a consortia to make it as worse yep. as possible. It could not be any worse. In fact, you know, as ivermectin is flowing through South America, it's flowing in Mexico, it's flowing across India, it's been accredited of crushing the pandemic anywhere it comes out. It's now officially endorsed in, in Japan that the American Medical Association in the early of September announced a campaign to abolish the use of ivermectin. Now, why would a medical uh, uh, group, which is basically a doctor's uh, a political action group, a doctor's advocacy group, who has, who has no competency or expertise in making drugged opinions or decisions, why would they announce an initiative to abolish ivermectin? Why would the FDA in official, in the NIH, in official tweets to America say that ivermectin is only a horse dewormer? Only a horse dewormer. When we, it's obviously a human drug. We prescribe it and use it every day. We have over 60 supportive studies with COVID-19. It's a very positive story. Ivermectin is a positive story. Why would this Why aren't we thing, celebrating it? Well, yeah, why don't we celebrate? Well, that's it. Like, <laughs> your brain just immediately goes to the answer that we're trying to be controlled by people who are instituting this fear and using this pandemic as a means to do that. It was a vehicle, yeah, a vehicle yeah. for cash, vehicle for power, vehicle for political sway. This was this was their vehicle. But the thing is, is I think the 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 bright side of things is they went too far too fast. And now it's unraveling, uh, you know, especially yesterday, uh, uh, a judge just uh, denied the Navy punishing a large group of SEALs that refused the vaccine. Yep. And, and that's going, the, the floodgates are starting to open and this is going to topple because the next phase is people are going to get scared that, that the witch hunt is about to start and they're going to start flipping and you're going to see people coming forward. And then also... We're gonna we're gonna play into our culture and the social media rush. I think by the middle of of this year, uh, you're gonna see a rush of people try and cash in on the book book deals with the inside. You know, I have inside information of the collusion of the corruption and things like that. I think you'll see a bunch of people. Well, come let's forward go with over that. books real quick. So I wanted to update the listeners that uh, there are a series of books out there. They're quick reads. And I think they're all complimentary. So the first one I'm aware of is actually by Diane Andrews out of Baton Rouge. It's a very brief book outlining just kind of the basic terms and what are we talking about. Then after that is uh, Dr. Pam Popper out of Columbus, Ohio. Uh, hers is about how the operations worked within the White House and the response team. Pam's got a lot of knowledge. Uh, and then after that was this one here, COVID-19 and the Global Predators. We are the prey. Uh, this is by Peter Bregan. And his wife, Ginger Bregan, I wrote one of the introductions. So did uh, Dr. Vladimir Zelenko of, of fame in treating patients early. And Dr. Lee Vliet, who's a former senior official in the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. Uh, this is a work, I can tell you, since I contributed to it, of complete nonfiction, heavily cited. If you want to see how Moderna and Pfizer had agreements in place and all the technology and IP in place to do a vaccine against the SARS-CoV-2 virus before it was even out of the lab, if you want to see the setup of this, if you want to see how the Chinese were working, aided by the National Institutes of Health in the United States, in making this a more contagious and lethal uh, organism, it's in the book. So the thing about COVID-19 and the Global Predators and the other books I'll talk about 
is that it's all in the open. This isn't secret information. And I was asked by Tucker Carlson uh, one time and then actually by Joe Rogan, who's doing this? And I thought about it afterwards. And I, I thought about, think about the naivety of that question. Like only Peter McCullough knows. Like, uh, yeah, I'll tell yeah, you. Right, it's right. in the open. It's in yeah. the open. So everything from Klaus Schwab and the Gates Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation and Gavi and Seppi, the National Institutes of Health, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, um, uh, uh, all the social media but firms. I think it goes all the way down to the lowest level just based on human nature because it because social media has has addicted the society to attention you've now given down to your normal ER nurse the ability to tell everybody how bad she has it because of the the pandemic like this is why I say there is motive at every level every level wants it to be worse than it is they want to exaggerate it they want to tell the world how scary it because it's their time. It's their time to to get the attention. It's their time to shine. That's an interesting perspective, JT. I um, am a frequent contributor to Fox News, actually, for the Ingram Hour. They wanted me on tonight, but I told them I can't do it since I'm on a quick uh, tour in Texas here on the podcast tour. Um, but last night, uh, Laura Ingram uh, had some data and presented this that over 80% of teachers want the schools shut down again. Yes. They want the schools shut down again. And while we're in the middle of the Omicron outbreak, which is a substantial outbreak, it's very tall. Omicron's broken through natural immunity, broken through vaccine immunity. It seems like everyone's going to get a, a spell with Omicron. I, do, I agree with delaying the school for a week or two to just kind of get this over with. Um, but at the same time, I was struck with this idea of people, in a sense, applauding another shutdown. Yes, yeah. Like, there's motive at every level. Well, like. it seems like, yeah, well, like we have conditioned our population to be used to being in a state of fear. Like we, we've, it's been so long. It's been since the beginning of 2020 that like we've been seeing this constant, constant, like you have to be fearful of this thing. You have to be fearful of this thing to where that's people. We wiped out now. private ownership. Yeah. Like to now. be in a state of fear and fear this thing. Well, let's tackle this. I was yesterday on a podcast with young podcaster. I want to give him some, uh, some props. And that's Tommy Kerrigan from New Hampshire. Great guy who's a young guy who's just absolutely brilliant on the historical connections and allegories of what's going on. But I was on with uh, Robert Malone, who had just uh, followed me yeah. on Joe Rogan, and then lead psych, psych, a professor of psychology from the University of Ghent in Belgium, Matthias Desmet. And it's well, I, I literally jumped on and it was as if I was going to graduate school in psychology. Matthias Desmet um, has concluded that, uh, in fact, we're in a mass psychosis. And this yeah. is important to realize uh, that we had, just as you said, we had a prolonged period of lockdown. In fact, people now almost want to go back to lockdowns, yeah. um, that we've had things taken away from us that we used to enjoy, uh, including, you know, getting together and have a good cup of uh, coffee. And, um, and that we've had a constant steady stream of what you point out, Logan, free-floating anxiety, just, just more anxiety, more, you know, we're just in a fear, more anxious, and we can't put our finger on it. We're just generally anxious. And then the capper is the fourth component to mass psychosis is called mass formation psychosis is that we have a single solution from an entity of authority. Yep. And how you know yes. we're in mass psychosis is that he says there's no limit to the absurdity in the solution. So the examples have been these, um, these mass religious cult suicides where everyone commits suicide. Yep. The absurdity in the end of ending the psychosis is a fair way to commit death. Another example is Nazi Germany, 
the absurdity of this in the end, it was people actually just, you know, volunteering their families for eugenics programs, you know, being walking into gas chambers. The, the absurdity of this was part, as part of a mass psychosis. And what he points out is very important in these types of operations, which what it is, for the doctors to be basically participatory in the mass psychosis. And that's what we're seeing now. People ask me all the time, Dr. McCullough, how come you see things so clearly? How come you know the burn citation, but nobody else would? And I said, I'm just, I'm just non-participatory in the mass psychosis. I see things clearly. I just see things clearly. It sounds like JT and Logan, you see things clearly. But obviously we are in some type of small minority. And I asked Desmond this yesterday. He says, that's always the case. There's a small minority that's non-participatory in the mass psychosis. And the two actually divide. And it turns out the larger group actually start to use parts of this as actually trying to in- we'll go injure the right. minority. Well, right. because you got to think of this, like we've been trained as children. Uh, the schools are set up the way that they are set up to breed factory workers. That was done in the early 1920s, like where raise your hand to speak. You are obedient. Like 99% of people just follow they follow it. They want to be their their version of success is having a career with a boss that has a good salary, not being completely independent, right. owning a business, or that like they, that. That's a minority. People people want to be told what to do. It's more comfortable for them. It gives them their box. Well, you know, and especially but, now, we say we need to go back into lockdown. Like we've conditioned people. Like that's what makes them feel safe now. That's they associate whether or not that's actually true. Well, safe, but also. You have a lot of employers that are having trouble getting people back to work because they experience getting to sit at home and collect subsidy money or money, any money from All, the government. Yeah. Now nobody wants to work anymore. And then what are you going to do when you're home on lockdown? You're going to watch TV every single day and you're going to stay in a state of fear. Like it's a, it's a, it's, oh, it's so frustrating to see it and be like a, to see this rotation of this mass psychosis. It is, and this deferral to authority is um, it's actually uh, throughout. Uh, on the way here, believe it or not, I was actually testifying uh, in a court case on my phone in the airport in <laughs> Love Field, believe it or not. And um, I made the point uh, to the council uh, that I'm on, the, basically the plaintiff council, that anything that's said by the National Institutes of Health, the CDC, the State Health Department, cannot be accepted as judicial notice. This is very important. Judicial notice says that something should be taken as fact. So the CDC says this, taken as fact. No, that this is a a very dynamic, fluid, scientific, uh, medical outbreak catastrophe, if you will. It's a crisis. And in the setting of a crisis, Nothing is taken as fact. Everything must be vetted. And so many of the statements are, well, the CDC says this, that we have to do this. And I mentioned Tucker Carlson asked me this. I said, Tucker, do you know that the CDC says that you should eat less than 10% of your calories in sugar and fat? <laughs> now, uh, who does it? Yeah, does who that, does that? Are people listening uh, to or that? Or someone asked me on an interview, Dr. McCullough, what do you think of the most recent CDC ruling? <laughs> Well, I said, I said, ruling? Are they the Supreme Court? Wait a minute, they don't issue rulings. The CDC doesn't issue rulings. So what's happened is the, the perceived power of the government agencies, the NIH, the CDC, and the FDA, has grown into a ginormous megalopoly, if you will, that almost uh, no one is allowed to even discuss or question. Right. right. Well, it's well, funny that you point this, you point this psychology out because this is something that 
that I con- constantly battled when I was in the military. Uh, you know, there was an overarching regulation for conducting airstrikes. And the arguments I would get into with my peers or superiors was when they would try and use one of the regulations as, as be all end all, I always rebutted with, but who wrote that? And and is there a chance that they didn't encounter a fluid situation like this that didn't account for that? Do you see where it doesn't work? And we just prove that. You have to update these because all science and everything, it only works until we until we oh, prove it. Oh, you hit a terrific, <laughs> listen, we've got a terrific parallel in medicine. It's called clinical practice guidelines. And people have said, well, we have to be according to the guidelines. It's been estimated in my field in cardiology that less than 10% of the decisions I make I can actually go to a guideline and rely upon. Why? It has to do with complexity, right? Your daughter has a febrile illness, has no respiratory uh, 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 symptoms, and has some vague musculoskeletal complaints. And the real goal is to diagnose osteomyelitis. That's actually the goal. But we're in the context of COVID. There's not a single guideline that tells a doctor what to do in that context, right? right? You just can't do it. And I can't, every, next patient I have who has sarcoidosis and they have diabetes, but they've had a prior thoracotomy. Now they have chest pain. And what, yeah, I, I am so far off the guidelines after the right, first three right. statements <laughs> in, the, in the history of present illness. That's the reason why guidelines are a backdrop. They are a framework. <clears throat> they serve the purpose of being an evidence review. That's fine. Uh, but all guidelines, in a sense, are supportive of what's really supreme is that is that doctor-physician relationship is called a fiduciary relationship. Right. We have a relationship to one another in order to make the best decisions. Well, like you were saying earlier, it's like we, we as a species, we want that single point solution for the thing that is troubling us. But it seems like we're all so different in, from individual things and people that there is no one solution. And like that's, that's a harder thing to wrap your head around. And that's why this conversation needs to get out there is because like we need to have an active involvement in all collectively figuring this thing out because it's going to be something that we live with for the foreseeable future. And and this is where I think the overarching thing that everybody needs to take away from from you speaking out, like whether the people that want to jump on the bandwagon that are that are that are debunking (laughs) this debunking thing, whatever, like like I want you to look at this at the big picture, you were trying to publish and tell everybody we need to treat this before it comes to the point of hospitalization and you're being shut down every step of the way of this. Wake up! Where's the, where's the negative in that? Yeah, what, what, what part of common sense do you disagree with? Um, uh, and, and, you know, what, what's happened is because of this censorship... Yet the, the public is really demanding some answers. The, the public basically has been stonewalled on any well, you're, data you're for, for two years. You're never coming up here and saying COVID-19 is fake. You're no, saying, no, it's a very, we can tackle yeah, it. Yeah, it's yeah. a very real illness. We have to attack it like it. we do other problems and, and, in yeah, life. Just like attacking other problems. And so what's happened now is that there, there's about 500 doctors in the United States who honestly can read this and, and you know, ste- have stepped out. And there's a lot of them are specialists. You know, there, there is no infectious disease doctor that prior to COVID-19 was an expert in COVID-19. You know, I've had as many publications and I've reviewed as many articles. I've treated as many or more patients, advised on others. I've had the illness myself, now two different strains. There's probably no single person in the world who has more of authority 
on making statements on COVID-19. When I told Tucker Carlson like this, he started getting worked up and he looked at the camera. He goes, listen, if you don't know who this doctor is, you better go look him up. He has authority. And, uh, you know, I've had heads of state reach out to me. I've had every single uh, faith denomination reach out to me just wanting a conversation mm-hmm. uh, about COVID-19. And my points are consistent, that we are in a crisis of compassion, that um, patients are suffering. And even if our medicines are far from perfect and that our solutions are far, far from perfect, just showing compassion to one another would lessen the suffering the isolation would lessen the panic, the proclivity for hospitalization. I've been struck with a paper by Fillmore and colleagues published from the VA showing among the millions and millions of hospitalizations that have occurred in the United States that we'd infer, 90 uh, uh, of the uh, 45% of them never had an oxygen saturation below 94%, which is normal. Meaning a large segment of these hospitalizations are driven out of pure panic. Can you imagine you're a senior citizen? You're 75 years old. So they're taking up resources. You're taking up resources. You're you're 75 years old. You're you're worried. Uh, You're getting sicker and sicker. Your doctor's not answering the call. Or worse, your doctor tells you there's no treatment. Of course there is. And then you get to a point, you're talking to your family. Your family can't see you. You get to that breaking point and said, I I, I can't, I'm, I'm throwing in the towel. I'm going to the hospital. And then you're captured. Yeah. Because in the hospital now, that right. was a protocol. Yeah. Now they They're got you. Down. Yeah. Yeah. Now they've got you. And, the, and another thing that makes this difficult is the name of the virus. The name is called Sudden Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. So what happens is everybody who gets this, the medical personnel say, well, they're fine now, but they could suddenly get worse. So now we have to hang on to them. We have to observe. We have to hang on to them. And it's a never-ending. These hospital stays, by the way, are incredibly long and getting longer. Yeah. So it seems like... A, uh, to add to your point here, the conversational around the monoclonal antibodies is like working away because it's a good, what, what would you say? It's a good self-treatment option at this point or, or one of the better ones. And recently uh, I, I got it. And then one of our guys here also tested positive for COVID and then went to go get the monoclonal antibodies. And he, he went and go got it, but his he's of Cuban descent. And they were like, they asked him what his race was when he went to go get this. They said, all right, you're good. His wife, who's white, went to go get it. And they're like, no, we're not able to treat you at this time. When they went, there was like 20 people out of 100 spaces open and available to be able to do this. So there's restrictions up, like getting the ivermectin, getting the monoclonal antibodies. This isn't the first time I've we're heard ga- about this. We're gaming we're, the statistics where we're, because we're restricting Every people. level has motive. Yeah. That's what getting I Getting the complete treatment program. Like, it's insanity to me. Just so the listeners know, the monoclonal antibodies are a product of Operation Warp Speed. They're a product of private-public partnership. They're made by high-quality companies, Lilly Regeneron and GlaxoSmithKline. They are fully humanized monoclonal antibodies. They are innovative. As a doctor, I've never had a monoclonal antibody that I can treat a fatal viral infection with. These meet all the criteria for an innovation and advancement. Absolutely wonderful. In medical economics in November of 2020, it was announced that the U.S. had already purchased 100 million doses. 100 million. We are ready to treat a third of the country. country. And we had on order another 500 million doses. We basically were ready to rock and roll and treat every high-risk patient with monoclonal antibodies. 
And on top of that, the company's big pharma did great. Lilly, the first product out of the gate in November, this was before the vaccines. The monoclonal antibodies preceded the vaccines. Lilly used bamalivimab. Uh, quickly, the virus outmutated it. So we brought that on the side. Lilly came back, by the way, with a combination product, uh, bamalivimab and urtisimab. Wonderful, they're back on. Regeneron, which is what former President Trump received. Uh, we had uh, uh, Governor Abbott, we presume, received it here. With Joe Rogan, I just spent time with him. He had it. Aaron Rodgers received it. Um, uh, so Regeneron, a great workhorse. It's a, a product, a combination of two products, carvazivimab and inovimab. And then we had GSK. Now, GSK is the one that's really uh, in the spotlight right now. GSK is sotirivimab. And it's the first monoclonal antibody that goes against part of the spike protein that doesn't mutate. And it was specifically designed to handle the next mutation that came along. Mm. Talk about a brilliant scope. Now, in the New England Journal of Medicine, randomized trial, prospective randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. You can't get better evidence of this. People can't argue with this. There was an 85% reduction in hospitalization and death. 85% 85% reduction. It's a 500 milligram infusion. It's given over an hour. It can be given down to age 12. Talk about, you know, I'll say a, a child who's struggling with asthma or cystic fibrosis. This is the answer for our acutely sick people. And it was EUA approved in May. Now here we are in January of 2022 and we have an outbreak and where are the monoclonal antibodies? Well, uh, someone on my team in my circles, Joe Ladapo, former UCLA professor, now Surgeon General and Secretary of Health and Human Services in Florida with Ron DeSantis, is absolutely on a warpath. Where are the monoclonal antibodies? Uh, I'm in I, uh, you know, my practice in the largest healthcare system in Texas. We just got an email that said, we're out of ammo. We're, we don't have any. We're not going to have any. We'll reevaluate. Of, of the monoclonal antibodies? Like, yeah. out? Out. What? Out. Where'd they go? Now, the public health agencies that are responsible for procurement and distribution, and let alone actually access, are all accountable. America should be outraged right now as high-risk seniors get sick with COVID-19. Now, fortunately, Omicron's a milder variant, but it's hitting both the previously recovered and the vaccinated now that we do not have monoclonal antibodies fronted to America. I relied on these every day of my practice uh, since their, their release, and suddenly I have no ammo. But why? Well, like where? Where? Like where is it? There's no answers. There's no answers. <laughs> There's no answers. How is there? We no don't answers? have to tell you. We don't have to tell you. What? What? What are you going to do? Everybody who's received these monoclonal antibodies two hundred one will tell you they improved. Joe Rogan said it was amazing. Uh, these are amazing drugs. Now, they don't stop the virus completely, but they mop up the circulatory virus that's in the blood it's called viremia and cuts down the viral load. We actually use, now we use oral nasal washes with uh, povidone iodine or betadine, a 1% solution that's diluted down from the 10% you buy uh, over the counter at Amazon. Or dilute hydrogen peroxide, a one to three dilution in the nose. We actually uh, spray it up the nose, sniff it back, spit it out. So we kill the virus here. And if we give monoclonal antibodies in very sick patients systemically, we've basically neutralized the virus. Now we just have to work on some inflammation and thrombosis. Yeah, I did it uh, day four after, you know, initial. And it was, I, and this is what uh, the person that administered it told me, like, you may see a slight dip in, in how you feel. Uh, and I did, I was like, ah, I don't feel quite as, but the next day it was like, I was a different human. Like it had because most the, of it. Don't forget, it initially mops up the virus that's kind of in the plasma, but the virus is replicating. So as the virus emanates out of your cells, the monoclonal antibody is still there to grab them. So it's interesting. That's the reason why you get that dip. So you had it about a, uh, about a month or two ago. Mm-hmm. 
So you almost certainly had the Delta variant. Yeah. The Delta variant, in my experience, was the hardest, hardest outbreak. Oh, really? Because Delta was replicating the viral loads in the nose were 251 to 1,000 times higher than the predecessor versions. And Delta seemed to be much more invasive and affected younger people. So for the first time, uh, you know, with Alpha, we, we largely were a wild type and Alpha-dominated country. We never had Gamma, which what Brazil had. And co- in communicating with the, my colleagues there, it was, Gamma was rough. Yeah. We never had that. Beta was a softer one. That was out of South Africa. We didn't have much beta. Um, I had it uh, now over a year ago. I had alpha. I was in the uh, research protocol, so I was genotyped. People ask, well, Dr. McCullough, can we find that out from the PCR, what type of virus we have? I said, no, that's only done through sequencing labs in research or in departments of community health. We rely on what's called NowCast. NowCast is the CDC uh, prediction algorithm that's very accurate. And you can go online and see where you are on this in your region. Uh, the, the data on sequencing comes in arrears from our departments of community health. Nowcast currently has uh, uh, the nation at 93% Omicron. So the next patient that I get called on, I guarantee when I turn on my phone, it's going to light up with a, a whole series of cases. I know it's almost always going to be Omicron. And Omicron is far milder. Everyone needs to know this. It broke through natural immunity. Natural immunity, by the way, used to be robust, complete, and durable. You didn't get alpha over and over again or beta or gamma or delta. But now Omicron is an overlay. Uh, I personally had it. It's a very mild syndrome. I felt a little warm, a little bit of a fever. I literally extinguished it with the oral nasal washes yeah. of on iodine. Didn't take any other medications. I have seen others, though, uh, who are obese, have other uh, disorders uh, about my age or older, where we've had to use an accelerated course of ivermectin plus uh, prednisone, aspirin, and some other drugs. Uh, I've had one lady who's nearly 80, really uh, high risk, and I pulled the trigger. I wasn't sure if it was, if it was um, Omicron or Delta, and I got GSK sotorivimab before the supply line dried up. Mm, interesting, because yeah, I, had, I did the monoclonal antibodies on day four, and then I came off. How'd you get them? What do you mean? Well, I just I just did a quick Google search, and there was this place in Austin, uh, and somebody drove down, nurse drove down, and admitted. Are you able to get ivermectin? Ivermectin, I can prescribe it. Yeah. The question is, will the pharmacies dispense yep, it? Exactly. And the pharmacies do a whole series of roadblocks, and I have to tell you, uh, uh, you know, the, we do have laws that apply to prescriptions and what have you. And as a doctor, when I prescribe a drug, you know, by law, that pharmacist should fill the drug. Right. Now they can call regarding a question, a dose clarification, what happened. <laughs> what started happening from the very beginning with hydroxychloroquine or azithromycin or prednisone or colchicine was a protocol that if a patient came in and they had COVID, the pharmacist would say, well, I can't dispense it to you. Let me call the doctor and clarify something. Well, if I'm with another patient or you're the doctor's gonna, in yeah, the operating room, I'm yeah, just, not, I can't be picking up call. I mean, I'm, right now, if somebody called me, obviously I couldn't get it. And then the pharmacist would happily tell the patient, sorry, we can't give it to you. So patients would go to the, or their family members would go to the pharmacy. They'd come home empty-handed with no drugs. This started from the very beginning. And then it just kept ratcheting up and ratcheting up. And one day, uh, last summer in Dallas, I got called by a kind of an aggressive pharmacist, Tom Thumb Page uh, Pharmacy. I said, Dr. McCullough, uh, did you prescribe this ivermectin for this patient with COVID-19? I said, yeah, I did. And he said, do you know that the National Institutes of Health's guidelines do not endorse the use of ivermectin for treating COVID-19? I said, yeah, but why don't you look on page eight of those guidelines where it says, ultimately, it's the doctor's decision on what drugs are used 
uh, it doesn't matter what this guideline says, the doctor's decision-making uh, is the ultimate arbiter. Administer the drug. And I thought to myself, is that pharmacist on the next diabetes pill that I prescribe, is he going to call and shake me down on the next diabetes <laughs> right. pill? Yeah. So yeah. what is in the minds what of is, pharmacists? Yeah. What's every in their minds? Level, yeah. Every level this their, is affected. Yeah, what is in their minds <laughs> to create harm? So from the very beginning, it's harm. Let me give you another example. It's like was, you're talking about a scabies medication. Yeah, Who cares I, I, if they but, take it? But let yeah. me get this. But, 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 <laughs> but everything in the pandemic is about causing harm. So uh, I, I told you that, that uh, people in my circles, about these group of 500 doctors, maybe uh, probably 20 of us, are basically have taken our message to the road. We're going on road shows. And so we'll, I'll give public programs. I'm giving one with former um, cabinet member Ben Carson in Phoenix in a yeah. couple of days. We have like 48,000 people coming. This is not a small thing. So we are doing public programs. Where that is amazing. Thousands of people coming. And it's simply a grand rounds. It's simply yeah. just the review of the data. And I will show, I will show slides like this that basically show the JAMA paper. I'm not making this up. I mean, yeah, this is yeah. exactly what I was published in JAMA. It's all you could say. Right, it's all citable. <laughs> so there's no, <laughs> there's no hearsay. So anyhow, uh, in one of these public programs, this really nice lady comes up to me, middle-aged lady, attractive. And she goes, Dr. McCall, I'm a pharmaceutical representative. And, you know, I've been on this for two years. I've already had COVID. And now I'm under a mandate. <laughs> and I work from home. So I'm not really out from people. I'm on the line. And uh, they've told me now that if I don't take the vaccine, I have to get a test every week. And I said, well, did you have to do that six months ago? We still had, no. I said, well, what's changed? What's changed now? Why do you have to do testing now? That right. makes them going in for tears. Why? She goes, well, they, they're just telling me I have to. And I, and I said, you know, you've already had COVID. You're working at home. Uh, you know, there's obviously no rationale. The FDA, by the way, does not, approve or clear testing for asymptomatic testing. None. The World Health Organization does not adore, endorse asymptomatic testing. Neither does the CDC. There is no so support. So all three yeah. of them no, say don't no, test people that don't none. need a test. There's no regulatory support for the next routine test that's done. And I told her, I said, you know, the only thing I can interpret from what you're telling me is now your company has decided now that if you don't take the vaccine, that they actually want to harm you, that they want to do something to you that is uncomfortable. Some people have told me, listen, doctor, I have to pay for the test myself. Oh, I said, well, now they're, now they're trying to financially harm you. I said, why don't they just once a week just stick a knife in your arm? Just stick it in your arm and they can exert harm. That is the desire of this, is to create harm. Yeah, so it's true. No vaccine has gotten FDA approval yet. Is that true? That's true. So why why, why have, are they why, why are they, they where where is the argument that it is why is the military claiming that that's untrue like I mean obviously to cover their ass August twenty third Pfizer tried August twenty third Pfizer went to the FDA and said we have enough data to get our Pfizer vaccine approved and the FDA looked at this uh, the lead uh, FDA regulator regulator is Dr Gruber and they it was no advisory <laughs> panel uh, they looked over the data. And they said, okay, Pfizer, you get continuation of the emergency use authorization, no change in approval status. Comirnaty, which is the German BioNTech product, was able to become legally distinct from Pfizer. And then what the FDA said is, okay, Comirnaty, you have a biological license agreement. You have a BLA. Now, BLA says you can move forward and get approval, but you have to agree to post-marketing studies for myocarditis, you have to agree to 
uh, getting more data on pregnancy and safety in pregnancy and how to put this in your package insert. And you actually have to have a full package insert, a full prescribing information, and we have to approve that. If you do that, you'll get a biological license agreement. So two letters were issued out of that meeting. And then the day that happened, the media and all the authorities had a talking point that Pfizer was approved. It went all the way up to the president of the United States who said Pfizer was fully FDA approved. It triggered a whole the wave of FDA mandates. The FDA didn't come back and say, wait, no, that's not the right. The FDA put on their website, uh, we now have approval of the Pfizer slash BioNTech vaccine. So they kind of kept it together as the legally the single legal entity. And then they went on with some uh, proviso language that effectively told America that it wasn't approved. And of interest, of interest, I told people, uh, in fact, I was recently on a Fox News documentary and the Fox News uh, person who did it, I can tell he was pretty aggressive. The whole thing is wearing a mask and he was really going after me. He goes, what do you mean it's not approved? And he pulled it up on the website. I said, you'll know the day that Pfizer, any vaccine is approved. Why? Because when it's approved, there's going to be a full package insert with the full prescribing information. They're going to tell you everything that can happen with the vaccine, like any other product. The company will have to buy and sell the product. So there's going to have to be insurance approval for it. You're going to have to buy it. The consent form will change. Right now, everybody who signs the consent form says, this vaccine is research or this vaccine is investigational. Every single consent form. There's not a single consent form in America that says that it's an approved product. So there's no way it can be approved. Everyone taking the vaccines knows it's not approved. And the idea that the president president of the United States has said this, this is deception in the open. So we have this thing that it's available for emergency usage. Like what, what is the, the time span in which the FDA is going to like allow it to fall under that category? Well, let's talk about emergency use authorization. So EUA, people, yeah. it, it is a piece of regulatory legislation that in the setting of an emergency allowed a product to come into public use without going through full testing and really knowing whether or not it works or not. So all the, uh, the consent forms say, this is emergency use authorized. We don't know if it's going to work and we don't know if it's going to be safe. You read every consent form, that's what it says. And EUA was applied to diagnostic testing like the PCR, di- applied to uh, the monoclonal antibodies, remdesivir, uh, et cetera. It was actually incorrectly applied to hydroxychloroquine, by the way. Hydroxychloroquine is already on the market. It's already safe and effective. It didn't need the effective restriction of an EUA, but I'll leave that aside. Right. But the EUA had previously been used for roughly a dozen products. And those products were things like anthrax. The military needed an anthrax uh, vaccine, for instance. And it was- Well, we were all headed over there regardless. So uh, (laughs) the bottom line is uh, it's been used before. And in fact, anthrax, which got anthrax vaccine that got EUA approved was used transiently by the military and was withdrawn. What you should know is since this start of using the EUA mechanism, not a single approved commercial product has ever come out of emergency use authorization. In fact, I think- uh, honestly, that uh, uh, the Lilly, Regeneron, and the GlaxoSmithKline products actually should have come out of EUA because they're they're very good products. No, no uh, anthrax vaccine has ever gotten FDA approval. It it uh, it, it uh, the anthrax vaccine, um, I believe, actually got FDA approval and then it was quickly withdrawn. But it's not available. Yeah, because they stopped it after a while. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. I got mine. Like we, oh, I got God, it early like, on, but then after that, yeah, I don't check, remember. Check it ever me on back. that. Fact checkers, yeah. check me on if the if the anthrax vaccine was temporarily approved by the FDA and withdrawn, that could be the case. So we're we're looking at these these vaccines could just 
potentially continue to exist. In well, what was with this 55 years? Yeah, what was with the, we don't have to show you anything for 55 years. It's extraordinary. People are frustrated because the vaccine manufacturers have not leveled with Americans on what's in the vaccine. What's in the product that you're being man? Yeah. The full list of what's in the what's product. This? That's just fair. Never, like, that's when just you go fair. to a restaurant and you order a meal, what's you want to know what's in it. To that's, know if you're allergic to that's, 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 that's just fair. And don't forget, the um, vaccine manufacturers actually have their own pharmacovigilance. So they're keeping track of what's going on. And so it's fair to know what they know. And so the, the most frequently used vaccine is Pfizer. That's 30 micrograms of messenger RNA coded for the original Wuhan spike protein on a lipid nanoparticle. That's the Pfizer product. It's approved for initial use, shot one and shot two, for immunocompromised, a third shot a month later, and now boosters, a fourth shot now w- would be four months after the third one for immunocompromised. So someone immunocompromised in theory in six months can have four shots of this stuff. Right. We ought to know what's in it. So uh, lead attorney Aaron Siri and his uh, co-counsel Elizabeth Brem filed a lawsuit and said, Pfizer, we want to know what's in the vaccine and we want to see your regulatory dossier. And during the discovery process, Pfizer disclosed they have 400,000 pages of information on their vaccine, which it accumulates. You can imagine a safety report alone would be probably 30 pages. So, I mean, it, it can add up. And yeah. I've dealt with data safety before, and I can tell you I'm not, I'm not, I'm not afraid of big, uh, big documents. And uh, at any rate, uh, there was a, a, um, an expert review panel named. It's called a public health uh, professional review panel. 30 expert doctors. I'm one of them. In fact, I've been named the lead of the 30 panel. Okay. So this goes into Pfizer and the FDA said, listen, show us. We want to we see what you have. The attorney representing the FDA goes to the federal judge and says, we don't want to release this for 55 years in 2076. In fact, they doubled down and extended it even more. I'll disclose, I'm 59 years old. I can't make it another 55 years <laughs> to review the Pfizer dossier and lead the team. I can't do it. And so uh, when people wonder, why are there conspiracy theories? Right. <laughs> and why are there conspiracies that are now well-documented in these books? And why do people have distrust why would they? In fact, a Pfizer employee got unstable and actually leaked some of the documents. I think the first several thousand pages came out and it's clear Pfizer knew about thousands of people dying shortly after the administration of their vaccine. They knew it. Thousands. This which is you said all if in the open. 50, that's a... 50 per product is typically gets... No go. ...off the market. Typically five deaths, can't explain it. Black box warning may cause death. 50, it's off the market. All the vaccines combined, everything out there, all in, 278 million people getting shots. The number of deaths that ever get in this database per year is about 150. We were at 182, largely with Pfizer and some Moderna, on January 22nd with only 27 million Americans uh, vaccinated. If we had proper safety oversight and a proper data safety monitoring board, which I would gladly lead if they would have called me, this thing, the vaccines would have been off the market in February. Wow. <laughs> I think I think we we got it all. Yeah, I, I just I don't know. It's frustrating. I don't even yeah. know what to say a yeah. lot of times when it comes to this. You, stuff. We can't thank you enough. This was I, amazing. I guess I, I guess Doc. So so just like to wrap it up. So like, what should we tell the American public? Like how how do we not 
how do we acknowledge this mass psychosis and like allow ourselves to become involved in the process of treatment? Like what 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 do we need people to know? I think we're know? in the wave of the unraveling right yeah. now. It's starting to come thin and people, once I think the pressure gets put on and people see the, the eyes turn, once the target turns, then people are going to start singing very loudly to try and save their ass. And then we're going to, I mean, will we ever know what's what's right? <laughs> okay, so we have these two groups, right? So we have those in the psychosis, in the mass formation. And then we have the people outside the mass formation. And you ask about the directionality of movement. There is no movement from people outside the formation to say, I'm going to come into the trance of the group narrative and you know repetitive vaccines and denying people treatment and all this uh, yeah. horrible things. It's just like in Nazi Germany. The Nazi doctors who were committing all these atrocities one by one peeled out. Some of them actually, when they realized what they were doing, they, you know, it, it, was, it was horrendous what happened. So what's happening is people are pulling out of the mass into the group of the enlightened. And I get these messages all the day, all the time. I recently had a great experience. I had a patient of mine, a whole family. They have a genetic disease, but the father uh, was in a hospital in DFW with acute COVID, this is about a month or two ago, severe respiratory symptoms. He had no opportunity for early treatment. I said, great. I couldn't give him any ivermectin. I couldn't give him any hydroxychloroquine, no steroids, no anticoagulants. He's sick, he's in the ER. The wife is contacting me. I'm racing to DFW airport for a trip. And I said, well, just, I said, try to get him the monoclonal antibodies. You know what's so horrific is they will admit somebody to the hospital and deny the monoclonal antibodies and then give them remdesivir, which is a far less desirable option in the hospital. And I thought, I got a sick feeling in my stomach, like he's another one who's going to go south on us. And then I went on my trip and I was on the way back. My wife was picking me up and I, I just circled back with the wife. I said, how's he doing? I almost didn't want to yeah. okay. And she goes, he was admitted to this doctor who follows you on the internet. He received the whole McCullough protocol, which is copyrighted now. As an inpatient, he needed an oxygen for a few days and he's going home. <laughs> I said, praise the Lord. Somebody good, is good. So you're making an that impact. And look at Aaron drink. Rodgers. Yeah. Aaron Rodgers was on yesterday saying, listen, talk to Peter McCullough. The, the protocol is there. And it's not just me. You know, independently, Pierre Corey and Paul Merrick, very well-respected doctors, Frontline Critical Care Consortium, they came up with their protocols separately. Didier Rialt in France, Vladimir Zelenko in Monroe, New York, Eugenia Barentios in South America, uh, uh, Sankaret uh, Chetty in South Africa. We worked independently and we came up with similar concepts of putting yeah. drugs into combination. No single drug is necessary or sufficient, but we use them in combination early to prevent hospitalization and death. The world should rejoice that independent medical thinking came up with the same solution. Yeah, now we just need all the people to yeah, listen. We need people to listen. <laughs> Stop the nonsense. So thank you so much. Yeah, this was this so has, awesome. It's been awesome, Doc. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, are you are you online everywhere? Where where can people actually check in on you and 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 read the stuff that you're putting out or attend some of these seminars? Well, like Lazarus, I have been risen from the dead, and I am back alive on social media, following very strict uh, guidelines. And I am out there across all platforms now. I am older, so I am not so facile on social media, but I have great expertise. In fact, expertise in the room today that's helping me uh, greatly. I'm trying to do better because I realize it's important. Do you know our medical literature, uh, although we read it ourselves, uh, is actually not being presented to the public? If you ever see any news segment 
and just watch what the doctors say. Very few will actually cite the source of data. I'm one of the few doctors uh, out there. And as this war of information or misinformation, I would tell people, listen, I'm not, I'm giving neither. I'm just giving the data and you decide. Well, good. I I hope this uh, gets your voice booming and we point you in your direction. Thank Thank you for coming. Thank Thank you. That concludes today's training. Any questions? Woo! Drum titties, boy!